Good morning. It's a joy to be with you all. It's rare that I get the opportunity to sit with you guys and sing, and what an encouragement that is. hope it encourages your heart as well. Before we begin, let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you that your mercy is more, that we have no access to you apart from your grace and your mercy, which you have freely lavished upon us through your Son and applied it by the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's right for us to pause and give thanks for all of what you have done for us. Lord, we just pray at this time, as we open your word, that we would behold the glory of the Lord, that we would see you for who you are, that this passage would speak to our hearts, that it would cut us deep, that your spirit would move in our hearts. Lord, conform us to the image of your son this morning. We ask this in your name, amen. Our passage this morning is found in the book of 2 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 12 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This passage, and verse 18 in particular, is perhaps the definitive passage in the New Testament on what we call progressive sanctification. Sanctification, that is the continual growth of the Christian in holiness, conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Sanctification is vital for us to understand and apply to our lives for a number of reasons, but let me just give you a few this morning. In Hebrews chapter 12, God says that we are to strive for holiness. Strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. God's word says that without growth in godliness, that person has reason to doubt whether they are even a Christian. Another simple reason why we need to study sanctification is found earlier in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. God tells us that unless we're paying attention, Unless we're focusing on Christ, unless we're, we're striving for holiness, unless we're disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness, unless we're doing these things, we're actually drifting. 
You see, drifting is the natural tendency of our sinful hearts. But God gives us passages like this in 2 Corinthians 3, like Hebrews 2, like Hebrews 12, to stir us up by way of reminder, to to focus our gaze again on Christ, to focus on Him. Before we unpack the riches of verse 18 in particular, which is where I want to focus, we first need to establish Paul's train of thought here in 2 Corinthians 3. We're parachuting in, right? We're coming into 2 Corinthians 3, and what is Paul arguing? Well, I would say that Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he's arguing for the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. That's his thesis statement, if you will. That's what he's arguing for, the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. Maybe you're new to our church and you're unfamiliar with the word covenant. We've been talking about it a lot in our equipping our class. But basically, covenant, the word covenant as it's used in Scripture, refers to an established relationship between God and man. An established relationship between God and man. Covenant is one of these key terms we use to put our Bibles together, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see it all throughout. In this passage this morning, 2 Corinthians 3, is one of those passages where Paul is actually showing us how those testaments fit together how the Old Testament relates to the New. The Old Covenant, and Paul speaks of that in 2 Corinthians 3, is referring to what we call the Mosaic Covenant. You guys remember the Mosaic Covenant, right? Exodus 20, what does God give them? The Ten Commandments, right? That's what we think of, most notably, with the Mosaic Covenant. The Ten Commandments and the rest of the law was an expression of this established relationship. There was a relationship between God and man through the Mosaic Covenant and the Ten Commandments. Here, in 2 Corinthians 3, when Paul speaks of the new covenant, he's referring to the covenant that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has brought about in his life and death on the cross. That is the new covenant. If you remember the Last Supper, when he's in the upper room with his disciples, and what we remember every time we take communion, Jesus says this, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. As we will see this morning, Paul is saying that these two covenants, or these two different time periods of ministry, if you will, are very quite different. They're actually not very similar. Maybe I'm weird, but I find it kind of humorous. Actually, I know I'm weird, but I find it kind of humorous. You know, you you see these advertisements today for, you know, the new smartphone, right? And the difference between the iPhone 13 and the 14, and it's like, well, this one has five cameras, and the new one has six. Like, it's actually not that different. It's just, okay, you have another camera. Well, this one is, you know, 100 centimeters big, and this one is 101, or whatever. It's just like, it's the same phone. But in these advertisements, they crack it up to, hey, this is the next thing, and you're missing out. You're a loser if you don't have this phone. Here, in 2 Corinthians, rather than saying that these are basically the same thing, Paul is arguing that these two covenants are very different. They are very different, both in their effects, what they produce, and in their intrinsic glory. They are different in their effects, what they produce, and in their glory. I need you to track with me this morning in 2 Corinthians, but also the book of Exodus. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture, but it's also complex, the argument that Paul is making. So track with me here. He's basing and building his argument 
off of Exodus, and in particular, chapters 32, 33, and 34. We're going to spend a little bit of time there in Exodus 34. But Paul is basing his argument off of the book of Exodus. If you have the notes this morning, I just want to show from this text three reasons why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Number one, because it's a ministry of hope. Number two, it's a ministry to the heart. And number three, it's a ministry of greater glory. It's a ministry of hope, it's a ministry to the heart, and it's a ministry of greater glory. Number one, a ministry of hope. Look with me back in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. The ESV begins that verse 12 with the word since, okay? It's the same word we see throughout the New Testament, also translated therefore, okay? Since or, or therefore. I learned this as a kid. Anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, you need to find out what that therefore is there for. What's he talking about? It's a connecting word. It's going back to something. Paul's beginning the paragraph, and he's saying therefore, or, or since we have such a hope, we are very bold, unlike Moses. He's going to unpack what this hope is. But what has Paul been talking about? Well, what's he talking about in context? Look back at verse 7 of chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Look at what he says. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. Stop, stop with me there. Clearly, Paul is referring to the Ten Commandments. They were engraved in tablets of stone, right? That's what he's talking about. But did you notice what he called it? Look back. The ministry of death. In verse 6, the verse right before it, he says the letter, referring to the letter of the law, the letter kills. I don't think Paul's exaggerating or, or trying to have dramatic effect. No, Paul is saying this is actually what the law does, and the Old Testament alludes to this. It makes this clear in Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Israel swears themselves into the Mosaic Covenant. This is the second generation. The first generation died out because they were so sinful. Now the second generation, they get the law again in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, the second giving of the law, and as they're looking to go into the land, this is what they say. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Israel, the, the nation, they're swearing themselves into the Mosaic Covenant, and they're saying, hey, if we don't perfectly obey the law, if we don't keep every single one, let the divine curse of God be upon us. And you don't have to get very far after Deuteronomy to know the divine curse of God came upon them because of their sin. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul quotes that same verse from Deuteronomy, and he says that everyone, everyone who seeks to be justified before God by works is under that same curse. Romans 7 adds that the law, because it explicitly reveals sin, the law kills because sin brings death. It deals out death to those who are guilty and sinning against it. This is what the law does, and it is excellent at what it does. Kill and bring death. In verse 9, Paul adds that it's what? A ministry of condemnation. In and of itself, the ministry of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, 
It's a ministry of death and condemnation. It offers no hope. It offers no grace. It offers no peace. It offers no mercy. The law reveals God's holiness, and by revealing God's holiness, reveals man's sinfulness. That's the ministry of the law. It's a ministry of death that kills because it explicitly reveals sin. But look back at verse 7. Look back at this text here, and notice, Paul isn't only comparing the effects. One brings death, and one brings life. He's not just comparing the effects, he's also comparing the glory of the two. That's actually that key word through verses 7 to 11, right? Look at this, we'll read the whole thing, 7 through 11, and notice the word glory over and over. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory." The glory that came with the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Mosaic Law is unlike anything else in the Old Testament. Just listen to these passages. The first is from Exodus 19. If you have the notes, you can look these up later. Just listen. Exodus 19 and Exodus 24. This is in the context of when God gave the law on Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Exodus 24, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of, its, of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. You see, that is a scene unlike any other. But Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 3 is that this new covenant ministry, what he calls the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of life, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, this ministry is far more glorious than that. Look again in verse 10. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The glory of the old covenant pales in comparison to the ministry of Christ and the Spirit in the new. And that is why, verse 12, we have such hope. This is why we have confidence. This is why we are very bold. We have hope to the highest degree. Verse 13, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face. 
so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, I hope, at least up to this point, you were following Paul's train of thought. But then, he starts talking about veils. Like, talking about a wedding ceremony here? Like, what, what is going on with the veil? What are we talking about? Moses and the veil? and What's going on here, Paul? Well, he's already alluded to this earlier in verse 7, but for our purposes this morning, we need more context. So turn with me, Exodus 34. Exodus chapter 34. This passage is essential for understanding what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Exodus 34, and begin in verse 29. Exodus 34, 29. This is after Israel's sin of idolatry with the golden calf. Moses makes new tablets. Now pick up with me, Exodus 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, that same mountain that was burning and smoking and thunder and on fire, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. In his face, he was reflecting the glory of God that he had just been beholding for 40 days. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his, over his face. Verse 34, keep going. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him, speak with God. So here's what's going on with Moses, God, and the veil. Moses was speaking with God. He was beholding his glory on the mountain. And by beholding that glory, you could say he was being transformed. Yes? His face was shining. And when he came down the mountain, the people were afraid to come near to Moses because of the glory of God in his shining face. They didn't want to see that. So Moses would put a veil, a covering, something over his face in order to speak with the people. You could say the veil made it possible so that the shining glory of God in the face of Moses could dwell with sinful Israel. Wearing the veil protected the people of Israel from seeing the glory of God. It prevented them from gazing dangerously long at the glory expressed in his face. You could say this, that the glory of God in the face of Moses revealed what the people were not. They were not holy. They did not reflect the glory of God. No, Israel had a sin problem. And because of that, they could not dwell with, they could not behold the glory of God. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that we are not like that. No, in fact, we are very bold. There's no veil over our faces. 
This ministry of Christ is glorious. This ministry of the new covenant is glorious. This ministry of the Spirit that brings life and righteousness is amazing, and that is why we have such a hope. Because of the surpassing worth and glory of the new covenant. Not only is it, one, a ministry of hope, number two, it's a ministry to the heart. It's a ministry to the heart. Turn back to 2 Corinthians 3 if you haven't already. It's a ministry to the heart. Verse 14. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In verse 14, he says there, Israel's minds were hardened, right? He's not leaving that historical example. He's not leaving that behind. Rather than transforming them, the glory of God to Israel hardened them. They were hardened by the glory of God in the face of Moses. And this hardening of the mind was not intellectual. It's not that Israel couldn't understand and read the words of the Old Covenant. They could read the Ten Commandments. No, Israel's problem was moral. Their problem was spiritual. They had a sin problem. Their problem, and the problem with every person born in this world, is a sinful heart. And the Old Testament is God's example of that in the case of Israel. They have sinful hearts, and that is the problem. Listen to Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 5, verse 21. He says this, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. He's talking to spiritual reality. They literally have eyes, they literally have ears, but they cannot understand and comprehend the things of the Lord. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, The prophets continually preach the law of God, and they show, Israel, you have transgressed that law. You have sinned. Their hearts and their minds were hardened. They continued in their sinful ways. They refused to turn to the Lord. And notice, Paul says this continues to the very day. Verse 14, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. And just in case you missed the point, he doubles down in clarity. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And so here, Paul kind of moves this this veil, and he kind of makes a point, and it makes it a metaphor of inability over the hearts of Israel. Their hearts are veiled. They still, to this day, have veiled hearts. They still, to this day, have eyes that do not see. They still, to this day, have ears that do not hear. This spiritual condition of blindness and inability to behold the glory of God continues. 
The old covenant relationship in and of itself could not bring life because it could not change the heart. At the end of Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses prays that the Lord would give the people a new heart. That's what they need. He knew that sinful Israel would fail because they had a heart problem. They need radical open heart surgery. Their problem is that they're worshipers of self rather than worshipers of God. You see, all the external rules of thou shalt and thou shalt not couldn't change their heart. But the Old Testament does not leave us without hope. No, in fact, it looks forward to the coming day when the Messiah, God's Son, the true King of Israel, the faithful and suffering servant, Emmanuel, God with us, it points forward to the day when He is going to do that work. He's going to bring about a new heart. He is going to transform His people from the inside out to live in right relationship with Him. Jeremiah 31 explicitly prophesies the new covenant, but also Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, listen to verse 25, says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You see, the covenant that humanity needed, the work that we needed to be done on our behalf, God promised to bring about. Forgiveness, cleansing, a new heart, the Holy Spirit, and the ability to please the Lord in obedience. God says, the day will come when I will change the heart. And look back at verse 16. What's Paul saying here? When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That promised hope of the Holy Spirit and a new heart, Paul says it's come. This new covenant that brings freedom from the dominion of sin and death has come. And this is the reason why Paul here in 2 Corinthians 3 says the new covenant glory far outshines the glory of the old covenant. This ministry changes the heart. Whereas the old covenant brought death and condemnation, the new covenant brings life and righteousness. Whereas the old covenant only revealed our need of a savior, the new covenant directly reveals that savior. Look at verse 14. Only through Christ is it taken away. In verse 16, the veil is removed. Notice how he says that there? You don't remove your own veil. The veil is removed for you. God does that work. We are unable and cannot lift the veil over our own heart. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our sins. You can't do it. Romans 8 says that those who are outside of Christ are hostile to God and cannot please Him. We are unable and undesiring in and of ourselves. But by the love of the Father from eternity past and through the person and work of the Son and in the calling and converting of the Holy Spirit, you see the Trinity at work in salvation and sanctification, God brings about a new life with a new heart that is able and does desire to please God. And just pause here. Paul is not just talking about what happened to Israel and what happened to the church in Corinth in the first century. 
You see, 2 Corinthians 3 it isn't just full of neat ideas. Wow, that's really cool. I'm glad you shared that with me, Caleb. That's a cool story I never heard in Exodus 34. That's not Paul's point. No, 2 Corinthians 3 is an account of the problem that we all have. All y'all and me. This is our problem. Our minds are darkened. Our hearts are veiled by sin. By nature, we are children of wrath, condemned in darkness, following the course of this world, carrying out the lust of the flesh, in bondage to our sin, and by nature, enemies with God. That's our problem. And the exclusive remedy to that universal plague that affects us all is not picking ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's not seeking to make things right. It's not working to earn our way with God because we cannot do that. The only solution to the plague of sin is turning to the Lord. Turn to him. It's only by trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, the law says do, and the gospel says it's done. I just say if you're here this morning and this is new to you, come to the Lord. If you have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, 2 Corinthians goes on to say, behold, today is the day of salvation. Come to him. Apart from Christ, apart from him and the work of the Spirit lifting the veil, you have no hope of a changed heart. You have no hope of life but only death. You have no hope of righteousness, but only condemnation. Apart from Christ, we are veiled and condemned, but in him we have freedom. In him we have life. The new covenant is superior because, number one, it's a ministry of hope. Number two, it's superior because it's a ministry to the heart. And number three, it's a ministry of greater glory. It's a ministry of greater glory. Look at verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And we looked at verses 7 to 11 because it's vital in coming to verse 18 to trace Paul's logic. Think with me here. Think. Put your thinking cap on, your biblical thinking cap. If the lesser glory led to Moses' face shining, and him needing to veil his face because the people were not able to look at him because of the glory, how much more then in the new covenant, which is far more glorious, how much more will we, will we need an even thicker veil? Do you, see, do you see what I'm saying here? You following his argument? If that ministry, as glorious and as amazing as it was, if that meant that the people could not gaze at its glory then how much more in this new glory that vastly outshines that one, how much more will we not be able to gaze at this glory? I mean, you need multiple veils, thicker veils. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. <laughs> we all, it's not just Moses, it's not just the Ultra-righteous, because that club doesn't exist. It's not just a select group of people, we all. Everyone who is in Christ freely beholds the glory of the Lord. This ministry is glorious. Not just because it saves, but because it sanctifies. 
The glory that we behold is not a fleeting or a passing away glory. It's not being brought to an end, as Paul discusses it here in 2 Corinthians 3. No, this glory that we freely, intently, and boldly behold remains and abides. And we have no need to cover or conceal this glory with a veil. Because the glory of the Lord, rather than bringing destruction or condemnation, brings transformation. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And sometimes you just have to stop and marvel about what Paul is saying here. Listen to these passages from the Old Testament. Remember these verses? Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And yet now, in the ministry of the new covenant, we can abide and we can dwell with that same God. We can have communion with him because he has made the way possible. As John 1 says, Jesus Christ is the one who reveals the Father. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's only in Jesus Christ that we have access to God, as Romans 5 argues. And 2 Corinthians teaches us that this is not just an initial access. This isn't just a one-time thing. We continually have access to God through Christ our Savior, whoever lives above to make intercession for us. And likewise, we don't just initially behold the glory of God one time. We don't behold Him once and then move on to other things. No, we continually behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate manifestation and revelation of God's glory. And if you don't believe me, look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 says this, that the knowledge of the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where Paul has been building throughout this whole passage. To get us to see the riches of God's glory in grace, in salvation, and in sanctification. We have such a hope because Jesus Christ works in our hearts because of the glory of his grace in saving and sanctifying us. You see, the new covenant is a greater ministry because it's one of hope. It produces boldness. We have confidence. And it's a ministry that works and changes our hearts. It's a ministry of greater glory that unlike Moses with a veiled face, we are changed into the same image of Jesus Christ by beholding him in his glory. We behold the glory of God. It's right for us to spend some time here just in closing and practically contemplate verse 18. Verse 18. Just two things. First, I want to look at how this passage should comfort us. And second, how this passage, verse 18 in particular, should exhort us. First, how it should comfort. If you guys are anything like me, we're oftentimes discouraged or unsatisfied in our Christian walk, yes? We don't love God as we ought. We don't love each other as we ought. We don't hate sin as we ought. No, we examine ourselves, and the more we see, the more we're discouraged. But this is where I think the doctrine of sanctification is an incredible comfort. Romans 8 
Paul writes there that all whom God justifies will one day be glorified. Everyone who's declared righteous in Christ, by faith trusting in him, God declares just. Every single one. And those who are justified will one day be glorified by the Father. That's what we call the chain of salvation. There ain't anyone breaking out of that chain. If you're justified, you're going to be glorified. But in the here and now, there's this thing we call sanctification. Sanctification, where we're continually conformed, as verse 18 says, to the image of Christ. We're continually dealing with our sin, being continually eradicated, and we're loving God more. God is doing this work. Let me just encourage you with this truth, that there is not one believer who will ever attain glorification in this life. No, that awaits the next, when we are with God for all eternity. You see, there is no next level Christianity. There is no second story where you're above other people. We are all on the plane of sanctification and God is working in us. In the here and now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 teaches us that the Holy Spirit is continually at work in you. He's working in your heart to treasure Christ more. That doesn't come from you. He's working in your heart to hate sin more. He's working in your heart to love God's people more. Believer, just be encouraged. God is at work in you. If you've been justified, he's working in you. Remember Philippians 2.13, which Mark just preached on? It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God delights in working in you. God is changing you. I mean, even think about this. That even the dissatisfaction you have with your growth, that that you're not who you ought to be, is an evidence that God is working in you. God is at work. If you guys know me, you know I like the English Puritans because they just have a clear way of putting it. Richard Sibbs, talking about sanctification, says this, some, because they cannot see themselves growing, think they grow not at all. But, We see the sun moves, though we see it not in moving. We know things grow, though we see them not growing. What's he saying there? He's saying that just because we do not see our growth in grace does not mean that we are not growing in grace. God's word says that if you belong to Christ, God is changing you. God is at work. You see, our desires in sanctification will always go beyond our abilities. I think ultimately because true believers groan ultimately for glorification. That's what we want. You see, heaven is not so glorious because there's streets of gold and it's you know just this amazing place. It's glorious because the Lord is there and you won't deal with sin ever again. That's what we long for. The absence of sin. So believer, take comfort. God is transforming us from one degree of glory to another, and that ought to comfort us. God is at work. Number two, how this text should exhort us. How it should exhort us. So many different things are said about sanctification. You need to do this. You need to stop doing that. Maybe you need to try this new habit. 
Maybe you're just telling yourself, man, I really need to be a better Christian. I need to do this. And sometimes, maybe that's true. But I think we make sanctification more complicated than it needs to be. I can still remember, I think I was in fourth grade. I was at a campground called Indian Scotty. And I was thinking in my head, and I've been dealing with this maybe for a couple years, how do I get to the next level? I trusted in Christ, but now what? You know, fourth grader contemplating the great things of God, right? How do I get to next level Christianity? And I remember there's maybe 50 of us, you know, uh, third grade through sixth grade or something like that, and you've got your camp counselors around. We're all sitting around a campfire, and this one kid gets up. This is late at night. He gets up. He goes up to the campfire. He picks up a stick. He's talking about, like, just his life story, just what happened in his life. And he gets to, you know, this is when I asked Jesus into my heart. Throws a stick in the fire and goes, sits down. While he's walking back, everyone's clapping. And then another kid gets up, like a couple seconds later, does the exact same thing. And this happens like four or five times, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, this is it. I need to go get up, talk about my life, say when I asked Jesus into my heart, take a stick, throw it in the fire, go sit down, and I've made it. So you can guess what I did. I got up there, talked about myself when I asked Jesus into my heart, threw that stick in the fire, and I sat down, and I was like, wow, I've done it. And it wasn't much long after that where I realized nothing changed. Nothing happened, except for a stick went in the fire and burned. But nothing changed. Now, I don't know if you have a stick fire experience, but I think that type of experience is common in our Christian thinking. We need to have some powerful external event. Maybe for some of us, we need to maybe speak in tongues. Maybe we need to do this amazing thing, and we have finally reached next-level Christianity. Let me just tell you, in case you're confused, you don't need that. No, in fact, the Bible makes it simple. What you do need is to behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what you need. And you need to abide there. You need to continue to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Biblically speaking, that's how transformation, that's how sanctification happens. You behold the glory of the Lord, and he changes you. But what does that mean? I mean, how do you practically behold the glory of the Lord? Let me just give you a couple examples. First, and most importantly, you go to his word. You go to his word, and you ask the Lord to help you. You say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I need your help to change me because I can't change myself. You need to sanctify me. You need to help me to love you more. Help me to grow in grace. Help me to behold your glory. You pray with the psalmist, Psalm 119, verse 18, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your word. That's how you grow. You go to his word and you study his attributes. You study that he is the creator that God is the sustainer, that he is eternal, 
that he is incomprehensible, that he is uncontainable, independent, perfect. He is holy. He is justice. He is love. He is mercy. He is grace. He is good and righteous. You go to his word and you study the gospel. You never move on from the gospel. There's simply no substitute for growth in grace besides reminding ourselves again and again of our sinfulness and Christ's righteousness. John Owen said this, there is no better way for our healing and deliverance, yea, no other way but this alone, namely the obtaining a fresh view of the glory of Christ by faith and a steady abiding therein. The only way is to believe by faith the promises of God in Scripture. That's how you behold the glory of God. You go to His Word and you study the love of God. 1 John 4, 8, we're familiar with it. It says that God is love. But the passage doesn't leave that love undefined. We're not left wondering, what does that mean? It goes on to say that the love of God was manifested in that He, God the Father, sent His only begotten Son. He sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. See, friends, Jesus Christ reveals the love of God, which is so glorious that we cannot put enough words to describe it. Jesus Christ reveals the love of the Father, and it's beyond our words. George Swinnick, another favorite author of mine, he attempted to describe God's glorious love. Here's what he said. If love were quite lost among all the creatures, all might be found in Jesus Christ. His name is love. His nature is love. All his expressions were love. All his actions were love. He died for love. It was love that took upon him our nature. It was love that walked in our flesh. It was love that went up and down doing good. It was love that took our infirmities. It was love that gave sight to the blind, speech to the mute, ears to the deaf, life to the dead. It was love that was hungry and thirsty and weary. It was love that was in a bloody agony. It was love that was sorrowful unto his own death in my life. It was love that was betrayed apprehended, derided, scourged, condemned, and crucified. It was love that had his head pierced with thorns, his back with cords, his hands and feet with nails, and his side with a spear. It was love that cried out, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Love left a glorious crown, and love climbed a shameful cross. The truth is, it is a bottomless love. So true. See, friends, sanctification is not complicated. We make it complicated. Sanctification is you look to Christ. Maybe you're here this morning. You're a believer. You're a new believer, and you don't know what to do. It's simple. You look to Christ. Maybe you're here, and you've been here for years, and you're a Christian, and you're walking strong, but you're wondering, what do I continue to do? You look to Christ. We never move on from the glories of our Savior. If you remember later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes that he's concerned that the church in Corinth would be, quote, led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's simple. Focus your love and affections on him. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. Hebrews 12 calls us to run the race with endurance, doing what? Looking to Jesus. 
How do you run the race with endurance? Where do you get your endurance from? The Lord Jesus. You look to him. Perhaps you could say, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Look to the one full of grace and truth and continue to gaze at his glory. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Behold the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the riches of your word. We thank you that this passage expressly reveals the superiority of the new covenant ministry that we partake in because we can freely behold the glory of the Lord. And rather than it hardening our hearts, it brings life. It brings transformation. Lord, I pray for our church, that we would not move on to other things, that we would maintain pure and true devotion to the Lord, that we would look full in his wonderful face. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you, not just today, but for the rest of our lives, that we would devote ourselves to love and good works because you are at work in us, both to will and to work. Lord, change our desires that we would desire to grow in holiness by beholding the glories of our Savior. We ask this in your name. Amen.